Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel reading. This is a recording of a Bible study I do every week in person at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel, and you would be most welcome. Just email me for the details. But it is here for you to benefit from, and I hope it enhances your experience of the Mass. So without further ado, enjoy a recording of this study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for all you are doing in our lives, for bringing us together here tonight. And we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to be in your word. We pray that your sacred scriptures would speak to us tonight. And in whatever ways we are searching, whatever ways we feel unfulfilled, doubtful, worrisome, stressed, we ask, Lord, that you just come and meet us there. Speak truth into the different areas of our lives that are seeking, that are hurting, that are lost, and we pray, Lord, that we would find comfort and direction and solace in your words tonight. So we invite your Holy Spirit to be present in and among us in our conversations and our study of this Sunday's gospel, and we just ask, Lord, that you would help speak to each one of us whatever message you have intended for us. So we pray, God, that this time would be laid at your feet, that you would remove any distractions or worries from our minds and hearts and allow us to be fully present as we enter into this time with one another. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. <clears throat> Good evening. Tonight we are in Matthew chapter 13, verses 1 through 23. This is the gospel for this upcoming Sunday, the 15th Sunday in ordinary time. Come on in, have a seat. There's room. Um, and so this gospel um, passage, as we've been talking about in the gospel of Matthew, Matthew is divided into five sections, main teaching sections. And this is the beginning of the third section, which is the parables discourse, where Jesus begins teaching in parables. But the interesting thing about this passage is that it begins right after Jesus in Matthew chapter 12, which we skipped over from last week's reading. Last week we were in Matthew 11. In Matthew 12, Jesus is going from controversy to controversy to controversy. He's offending Pharisees. He's healing on the Sabbath. He's doing all of these things that are making the religious people uncomfortable. And then, in the midst of all that discomfort, in the midst of all of that tension, he brings these teachings in parable form. Parables meant to not directly say exactly what he wants to say, but to leave something to mystery so that those who have problems with him may not directly see how he's confronting them and that those who really are seeking to follow him have an opportunity to dive a little deeper. So that's kind of the purpose of a parable. We're starting with one of the most famous parables in the entire Bible, uh, the parable of the sower. So we're going to read from verses 1 through 23. We're going to read it twice through. It is a, a larger, heftier passage. So first time through, just get a picture for what's being said. Jesus here is in the northern region of Israel, around the Sea of Galilee. So imagine this big coastal lake that looks like a sea because it's very massive. And he's near or in his hometown during his ministry, which is the town of Capernaum, which is a fishing town, a fishing village, uh, the home of Matthew and Peter and Andrew and James and John and people like that. So very uh, familiar setting. That's, that's where he is when he's delivering this teaching. So let's begin Matthew chapter 13, verses 1 through 23, the parable of the sower. <clears throat> On that day, Jesus went out of the house and sat down by the sea. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood along the shore 
And he spoke to them at length in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell on the path, and birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky ground where it had little soil. It sprang up at once because the soil was not deep. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and it withered for lack of roots. Some seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it. But some seed fell on rich soil and produced fruit, a hundred or sixty or thirty-fold. The disciples approached Jesus and said, Why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus said to them in reply, Because knowledge of the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven has been granted to you, but to them it has not been granted. To anyone who has, more will be given, and he will grow rich. From anyone who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because they look but do not see, and hear but do not listen or understand. Isaiah's prophecy is fulfilled in them, which says, You shall indeed hear but not understand. You shall indeed look but never see. Gross is the heart of this people. They will hardly hear with their eyes. They have closed their eyes. Hear with their ears. They have closed their eyes, lest they see with their eyes. To hear with their ear and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and be converted and I heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. Amen, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. The seed sown on the path is the one who hears the word of the kingdom without understanding it, and the evil one comes and steals away what was sown in his heart. The seed sown on rocky ground is the one who hears the word and receives it at once with joy, but comes, but he has no root and lasts only for a time. When some tribulation or persecution comes because of the word, he immediately falls away. The seed sown among thorns is the one who hears the word, but then worldly anxiety and the lure of riches choke the word and it bears no fruit. But the seed sown on rich soil is the one who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and yields a hundred or sixty or thirty fold. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So you get a sense now for the parable. You have the parable that Jesus delivers, a confrontation with the disciples. Why are you teaching him parables? And then an explanation of the parable. So now we're going to read this one more time, and as we do, I want you to listen just intently to the words. You may now have a picture in your mind. Set that aside and just listen to the words as they are proclaimed, and see if any particular word, phrase, or detail just stands out to you for whatever reason. Again, we're in Matthew chapter 13, verses 1 through 23. So if you find any word or phrase or detail that just jumps off the page, reminds you of something, strikes a memory or a thought in you, circle that, underline it, write it down, and just ask, Why is this standing out to me, Lord? What are you trying to say to me through this word? Okay, again, this does not have to be to theologically interpret the passage or even remotely understand it, but if some word just kind of strikes you or resonates with you, consider that a message from the Lord and begin pondering it. What is he trying to say to me through this? Okay, so that's what we're listening for this second time through. Anything that just jumps off the page, as well as anything that uh, proposes any questions for you. 
So second and final time through, the parable of the sower, Matthew 13. <clears throat> On that day, Jesus went out of the house and sat down by the sea. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood along the shore. And Jesus spoke to them at length in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell on the path, and birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky ground, where it had little soil. It sprang up at once because the soil was not deep, and when the sun rose, it was scorched and it withered for lack of roots. Some seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it. But some seed fell on rich soil and produced fruit a hundred or sixty or thirty-fold. Whoever has ears ought to hear. The disciples approached Jesus and said, Why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus said to them in reply, Because knowledge of the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven has been granted to you, but to them it has not been granted. To anyone who has, more will be given, but he and he will grow rich. From anyone who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because they look but do not see, and hear but do not listen or understand. Isaiah's prophecy is fulfilled in them, which says, You shall indeed hear but not understand. You shall indeed look but never see. Gross is the heart of this people. They will hardly hear with their ears. They have closed their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart and be converted, and I heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. Amen, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. The seed sown on the path is the one who hears the word of the kingdom without understanding it. And the evil one comes and steals away what was sown in his heart. The seed sown on rocky ground is the one who hears the word and receives it at once with joy, but he has no root and lasts only for a time. When some tribulation or persecution comes because of the word, he immediately falls away. The seed sown among thorns is the one who hears the word, but then worldly anxiety and the lure of riches choke the word, and it bears no fruit. But the seed sown on rich soil is the one who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and yields a hundred or sixty or thirtyfold. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So I invite you to take a few moments, look back on the passage and the things that stood out to you. And we're going to take about the next 10 minutes or so. You're welcome to share those things with the table, uh, the people you're sitting with. If you're at a smaller table, you're welcome to combine with others. Uh, but share those things, what stood out to you and why, and what questions did this reading pose for you? And then after about 10 minutes, we'll bring uh, everything back to the larger group and we can discuss and answer some of those questions. So if you're watching this later, please let us know what stands out to you. But for those of us here, we'll take about the next 10 minutes. So go ahead and do that. So a little, uh, maybe kind of summary of this passage as we start, and then we can get into some questions and your reflections. 
And at least what's standing out for me is this, this parable really evokes like the different responses that we can have to Jesus, right? Um, you know, who are the people in this parable? The sower, who's the sower? It's tricky, yeah. Because if you pay close attention, when Jesus explains the parable, and he talks about the seed falling, he talks about those who respond to what he says is the word of the kingdom. And Jesus is the word. He's the word made flesh. And so in essence, the seed is Jesus, or the message of Jesus. So originally, the original sower was Jesus, because he's proclaiming the message of who he is. But the sower then becomes any one of us who has responded fruitfully to that message of the Lord. And so we have to recognize our own position in this parable. We can be both those who've received or are receiving the message about Jesus, having different responses toward him. And there is a calling to eventually become the sower ourselves and go out and share that message of good news of Jesus, who Jesus is with the world. But no matter what happens, whether it's us sowing or Jesus sowing, there's going to be these different responses. And maybe you can identify with some of these. Maybe they were how you originally responded or how you tend to respond to Jesus, or maybe how you're responding now. These different ways where Jesus is trying to break into our lives and we have these different ways to respond. And I, you know, I categorize them in five different ways, uh, all beginning with the letter F to make them easy, hopefully, for me to remember. And the first one is uh, failure. That we can fail to respond. That Jesus works this thing in our life, but we're the seed in the beginning that sows, uh, is sowed on rocky ground and we get stolen away by the evil one. We fail to respond to this constant effort of Jesus reaching out to us. What does it say in the very first paragraph of the Catechism of the Catholic Church? In all times and places, God draws near to man. That's how the whole catechism begins. God draws near to us. He's constantly scattering the seed. Do you see how kind of like carelessly the sower is just like sowing seed? It's not meticulous. It's not with modern machinery, like one little seed in each little divot. It's just like chucking it all everywhere and seeing what sticks. That's how wasteful, in a sense, God is, how foolish he is in the love he lavishes upon us. He doesn't care if it takes root because he just wants to love us. I don't care if I get a benefit back from my children when I tell them and show them how much I love them because I want to show them how much I love them. I don't need that response, that edification that like, oh, thank you, Father, I recognize that you love me and I really appreciate this moment. Like, I don't need that. I effortlessly, or not effortlessly, but I lavishly want to love them because they're my children. And that's how God views each one of us. So he's wastefully, in one sense, in, in the sense of a farmer, just scattering all this seed, loving us, sharing his word with us. And so we can fail to respond. We can be that soil that has rocky ground and gets stolen away by other things. <clears throat> and the second response we can have is a very fleeting response. That we get very excited initially. Like, yes, maybe we have a very emotional response to Jesus. We go to a conference, we go to a night of adoration, we go on a retreat, we go to some kind of ministry, we have some kind of encounter with the Lord, and we're like, yes, oh my gosh, this is so great. But our roots aren't very deep. You know, when you're planting, if you plant on soil that is very shallow, especially like it says here in the parable, uh, that shallow soil usually has rocks nearby, and the rocks in the sun get very hot. And so the ground kind of stores heat. And seeds like that. So when you plant a seed there, it actually sprouts a lot faster. It's kind of like the greenhouse effect. If you put something like in a little greenhouse, it sprouts much faster. 
But if you don't then supplant it into or, or pot it in a, in a bigger area or give it the nutrients it needs, it gets scorched by the heat. And so we can have that kind of fleeting response to Jesus, that initial kind of gung-ho, like, yes, I want to do this. And then we get kind of scorched because we don't have roots. We don't have good community. We don't have good formation. We get kind of scorched away by the heat of the sun. So we can fail. We can be fleeting. The third, we can be fearful or fickle because there's two different responses here. It's either we get allured by the deceit of riches or the anxiety of the world. Worldly anxiety or the lure of riches. Worldly anxiety, we become afraid. Or the lure of riches, we become fickle. We kind of change our allegiance at a moment's notice to the thing that we think is going to make us happy next. And that's a struggle, I think, for a lot of us, especially in Western society. We have this mentality of instant gratification, that this will make me happy. This will make my life better. I'm going to do this, achieve this. This is what my five-year plan is going to look like. When it all works out, then I'm going to know that I'm blessed and that God is with me. And we don't really recognize that we're putting all of our eggs in this basket. We're creating an idol out of this life that we want to have. And when it goes wrong, we get too attached to it, or we start to get afraid, or following Jesus becomes too hard. Then we become like that seed that is surrounded by thorns, and we get choked. And following Jesus just doesn't have priority in our life anymore. And then the fourth, we can be fruitful. We can fall on that fruitful soil where we bear this harvest 160, 30-fold. A 30-fold harvest is like insanely good. Like if you get 30 more times the produce than you expected based on what you planted this year versus last year, 30 times more, that's, in, that's unheard of. And then he, he ups it by going 60 or 100, like Amazing abundance is promised to us if we allow the word of Jesus, if we allow him into our hearts and in our lives. And then the fifth response isn't even mentioned here, but it is a natural response. So we can hear the seed and we can just forsake it. No soil whatsoever. We don't even respond at all. We reject God completely. We don't have that soil that, oh yes, we responded initially, but then we, maybe we failed to respond like the first seed. No, we completely reject it. We forsake him. Those are our dispositions that we can have toward the Lord. And maybe you feel like you are leaning in one direction or another. You feel a tension between, oh, I really want to be fruitful, and I've had times in my life where I'm really fruitful, but I also can get kind of fearful or fickle or fleeting, or I can fail to respond. We all can find ourselves pinballing between all of these different ones, even on a daily basis. But it's important for us to recognize that A, this is part of the human condition, so you're not alone, you're not an, an imposter, you're not a hypocrite, like this happens to all of us. But the important thing is to acknowledge the ways in which Jesus is trying to plant that seed in your life, and then to seek to respond in a fruitful way from this point forward. And so this is a challenge for us to ask ourselves, what kind of soil am I cultivating in my life for the Lord? What kind of spiritual soil am I cultivating? And then also to think about who are those people in my life that I'm being called to plant the word of God in their life and to keep these responses in mind. Because this is why something like what we call pre-evangelization in the church is so important. For people, like people who aren't even ready yet to hear the word of God, they're pre-evangelization. They like maybe don't even trust the church. We have to think about them in their life and think about how are they going to respond? And how do I prepare in such a way that I build a good relationship with them, that I, I kind of lovingly invite them or inspire them or share my testimony with them in small little chunks so that maybe eventually I can try and plant that seed? 
Evangelization is kind of like, like farming in this sense, or like, let's say like surgery or painting, that pretty much all of the work is done preparing to do the thing you're going to do. Like if you're farming, you got to clear the whole field, you got to plow it, you got to get it ready for the planting. Like all of it is done in the preparation work. Surgery, like some surgeries go like that, especially with modern medicine, but all the preparation, the washing, the scheduling, the, me the, the meetings and the appointments and all of these things and getting you in the OR and getting you under anesthesia and all this stuff, all for this one moment that takes like, I don't know, 10 minutes probably in some surgeries. You know, it's all in this preparation work. Or in painting, like setting up the canvas and all of your paints and all of these things, getting the idea in your mind, sketching it out before you actually commit to the canvas. All of those are allegories, parables for what it's like to follow Jesus, what it's like to share Jesus with others, to evangelize. So much of it is in the preparation. So how are you preparing on a daily basis, not only to meet the Lord, but to share the Lord with others? Does this occupy enough of the time in your mind each day to be taken seriously. Because Jesus, I think, gets a lot of the last scraps of our time. You know, we schedule everything else, work, gym, time with friends, time with family, this event that I want to go to, the Taylor Swift concert, all of these other things. And I know, I'm getting the eyes from my wife. We're going, okay. <laughs> but all of these other things get on our calendar, and yet Jesus gets the last. What's left is like, okay, here is when I'll pray. Here's when I'll go to adoration if I have time. Here's when I'll go to Mass. Here's when I'll go to Bible study if I have time that week. But to be someone who is creating a fruitful planting ground for the Lord to plant his seed in us every single day so that it will grow into something beautiful and create more seeds to go out and evangelize others is someone who looks at their life and their calendar and says, okay, Jesus first. Jesus first. It would make no sense to a farmer to then plant all of this seed and then say, okay, before any of this grows, I'm going to build a barn right there on that part of the field, and I'm going to pave this over and make a basketball court. It's like, no, like you need, to, you need to clear the entire area and dedicate this part of your life, this part of your land to farming. That's the priority. And the same thing is true for you and me. How do I clear my life of all of the junk so that I can dedicate this portion of it to the Lord? I mean, it's all for the Lord but this one intentionally for prayer, encounter, and relationship with him. And then everything else gets built up around it. That is the life of a fruitful disciple. That is seed that falls on fruitful ground. And so that for me, as I read this this week, is a challenge for me to think about how am I responding to the ways God is constantly reaching out to me in my life. Even though I'm a minister, I work at a church, I've been in ministry for 17, 18 years now, God is still trying to reach out to me, to love me, to correct the ways in my life that I'm still not completely surrendering to him. Am I responding? And who are the people God is leading to me that I can then share that witness to? And he has that same invitation for all of us here tonight. So with that being said, anything that stands out to you in this passage that you want to share, any questions you have about this reading that you would like to ask, fire away. <laughs> I try not to explain all of it. Oh, he explains it. Yes. I thought you said you. Yeah, he does. Yes. Katie. Um, I was just curious why you chose those three numbers, or like the hundred, the sixty, and the thirty-fold, if there was any meaning behind that. Oh, you know, I don't know. I don't think so. I, there might be. I'm just unaware of it. Yeah. They're not typically significant numbers 
in the kind of a lot of the numerological symbolism that exists elsewhere in the Bible. Um, yeah, 100 usually is just like a big amount. You know, so if you multiply anything by 10 in the Bible, it just means they're trying to make it seem as big as possible. So 10, 1,000, stuff like that. But 60 and 30, not, not usually numbers that are frequently showing up. So, yeah, I don't know. Chrissy. We had a full discussion surrounding um, anyone who has more will be given and who will grow rich from anyone who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Such that in other contexts, I feel like he talks about like the third shall be last and the last shall be first, like those who have nothing will be given everything yeah. in the kingdom of heaven. So I just wanted to get your take on like what exactly that means. Is that kind of like the talents, like someone who doesn't use what they have, hmm. what they have will be kind of yeah because it seems very not jesus-y right because jesus is always like prioritizing the poor and those who have a little and then you have this image in this passage of jesus going up to a poor person be like give me that you don't deserve it and then going and giving it to some rich person like it doesn't seem i mean that's not what he's saying here but we can easily accidentally paint that picture right um and so what jesus is referring to here because right after that he quotes a prophecy from the prophet isaiah and so what he's referring to here is the old testament specifically the old covenant and so when he's referring to those who already have, more will be given, he's referring to those who have an understanding and have responded to the old covenant. That the ways in which God has already tried to reach out to the chosen people of Israel, if they've responded, or if others have come into the fold and responded to that, more will be given because what Jesus is coming is building on that firm foundation of the old covenant. It's not doing away with it. It's not changing it. It is fulfilling it. But what Jesus is saying here is that even if people have just been rejecting this from the beginning, then anything I have to say is just going to fall on deaf ears anyway. So even what I have to offer them, it's going to be taken away anyway, because they've already rejected the seed that's been planted from the beginning by my father, revealing himself to the Jewish people over and over and over again. And this is, is clear when you look at the context of this, this passage from Isaiah. This uh, quote from the, the gospel, or the gospel, the uh, prophet Isaiah is in Isaiah chapter 6, and it's right after God calls the prophet Isaiah. He calls him, and Isaiah says, uh, Behold, I am a man with unclean lips. And so there's an angel, a seraphim, appearing to him in this vision of the temple. He takes a, a, a if I'm remembering this right, he takes a burning hot coal from one of the embers on the sacrificial altar, and he touches Isaiah's lips, and it purifies him and makes him clean. And then this heavenly host, he hears the voice of God and says, Who will go and proclaim? this message to my people, and Isaiah volunteers. He says, here I am, send me. And immediately, this is what God tells him. He says, you are going to go and proclaim a message to people, and they will not understand. You're going to go show them they will not see. Because gross is the heart of this people. They will hardly hear with their ears. They have closed their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and be converted, and I heal them. This is at a time in Israel's history so we're going back seven or 800 years before Jesus, when the, the great big Hebrew kingdom of King David, King Saul, King Solomon has divided between north and south. And there's so much infighting and so much idolatry and so many corrupt kings that these prophets are sent by God to say, look, you need to go back to the way that God revealed to you to worship him, or you're going to get taken out by these foreign powers because you are... Uh, worshiping their same gods. You are being obedient to them instead of God, and you're going to provide these ways for, to, for them to come in very easily and leave you totally destitute. And God is warning Isaiah, you're going to tell them this message, and they're not going to listen, and they're going to get taken off into exile. 
They're going to lose everything. And that's why it's clear from this context right before that, even the, those who have not, those who have not responded, even what they have will be taken away. Because that's exactly what happens to the people at the time of Isaiah. He preaches this message over and over and over again. He tells them, Jerusalem will fall. We're supposed to be a light to the nations. It's one of the first proclamations in the entire Bible that the chosen people are meant to save and be the conduit of salvation for the entire world. It happens in Isaiah, way before Jesus. And yet, they don't respond. And Isaiah is told this by God from the very beginning. And yet, he devotes his entire life. Imagine that. Devotes his entire life. This would be like God coming up to you as a farmer, or someone coming up to you as a farmer and be like, I really need you to be a farmer for the rest of your life. But I want you to know from this point forward, any seed that you plant will die and never grow. But I really need you to be a farmer. Like your entire life would appear as though it were totally fruitless and a failure. I mean, imagine the faithfulness of Isaiah to have to do that. And sometimes it can feel like that, like living the Christian walk, right? It's like, man, Lord, I'm trying. But it feels like, you know, one step forward and 12 steps back. Like, I just like can't make any headway here. And that's why I think he just opposes that particular passage with this proclamation that if you respond to me, if you've been responding to me, then don't worry. Like what I have to share with you, even if you're confused, even if you don't get this parable, if you don't understand what I'm saying, more will be given to you because you're responding in faithfulness to the God who's been faithful to you. But if you, like the people from all these controversies from this previous chapter who are criticizing Jesus, telling him, don't heal on the Sabbath, you're healing by virtue of demons, you're in league with the devil, all of these people who are criticizing him, he's saying, if you're like them, and you just haven't believed from the very beginning, you can't even see the light because there's all of this hatred in you, then no matter what I have to offer you, it's all going to be taken away anyway. Just like 800 years ago, when I was warning you and warning you and warning you, that your decisions were going to lead to destruction, the same thing is going to happen now. And what's so interesting about this passage is this passage is quoted several other times in the New Testament. John quotes it in his gospel, in John chapter 12, I believe, when Jesus is preaching about uh, belief and unbelief, and what's the difference, like they're responding to him, so very similar to this one. But then Paul quotes it toward the end of Acts of the Apostles, I believe in Acts 28, when he's preaching in Rome, and he has this same ultimatum to the Romans, the central power structure in the entire world at that time. And he's telling them, if you don't respond to this now, if you don't see, then even what you have, even this glorious empire that you have built, the most powerful civilization in the world today, will fall. And it does. So over and over and over in the New Testament, this passage is quoted and shows up because it's hearkening back to a time where people were asked to respond to God and God knew some of them would reject him, and he allows them to anyway, to fall into their own destruction. But he compels us anyway to keep faithfully preaching the word, even if it falls on deaf ears. Even if we feel like we're always unsuccessful. It's such an important passage, that central, part, that central part of this gospel that surrounds the parable and the explanation of the parable, because it puts into context how important this is, and that it's not going to be easy. Sometimes it will fall on deaf ears. We may feel like we have never even remotely once been successful at living the Christian life or sharing the Christian life with anyone else. Like you're a farmer who just has to plant and be, being told it's never going to grow no matter what you do. But we show up and we do it anyway. That's the hard challenge of the Christian life. Gage. I don't know if I can articulate this, but it seems that with like Isaiah's prophecy, 
they did eventually listen after everything they had was taken away. Um, you have like, I think it's Nehemiah, when they come back and they beat mm-hmm. the whole, um, And then it seems that if we're to take this in the context of he's speaking, everything being taken away from the Jews, they do to an extent start to listen, like kind of acts of the apostles, mm-hmm. the temple's destroyed. Could that be like, I guess, the fulfillment of this? Looking forward, Paul says the thing about like, you know, um, I think he's talking to the Romans, he says, mm-hmm. you, you were converted basically to make the Jews jealous so that they would come back. Yeah. Um, could that be like a potential kind of future fulfillment of this? Yeah. Maybe, you know, they'll come back before the end. Yeah, and I mean, this is being written at a time before the destruction of the temple as well. So there is a pending destruction for both the Jews and eventually the Gentiles, the fall of Rome, that is going to be in the future. And so with every prophecy, there is a kind of an immediate uh, fulfillment and a future fulfillment. And so just like at the time of Isaiah, there was an immediate fulfillment. They were brought into exile. They lost everything. And yet there was always preserved what is called in, in, in the prophets a remnant, a remnant of those who remain faithful. That from them, not in their own lifetime, but passing it on to their children for 70 years they were in exile, eventually allowed to come back, can bring that relationship with God back into fruition. And the same thing is true here. Like Jesus comes and he preaches all this and there's all this energy around it. And then yet Christianity is persecuted for 250 more years. Uh, Jerusalem falls, the temple's destroyed. Rome seems like it's a superpower, you know, like, and then eventually Rome falls, you know, 300 years later. So it's just, it's wild that not only God can see all of this, you know, I mean, it's just incredible the, the way that God has stretched his arm into human history to arrange all of these things and, and knows all of these possibilities and can communicate to us that he like understands it all and is in control of it all. But what's also wild is that this is like the human condition just repeats over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And yet in every failure and every destruction, God is faithful. So I think absolutely, like, I think that could absolutely be true. There was that immediate fulfillment. There's the future potential fulfillment. Every time this is proclaimed, you know, this is the cycle of human history. That God reaches out to us, some respond, and some reject him. And God doesn't punish those who reject him. The rejection is what lures them into their own destruction. And God allows that to happen because he respects our free will. And he'll warn us over and over and over again with prophets in our lives. Hey, you probably shouldn't be doing that. Hey, you seem like you're going down a really bad path. Hey, maybe you should come back to church. But he'll let us keep making those decisions. So not only is this true in human history and in biblical history, it's true in Matt's life and Gage's life and all of our lives. Yeah. Yeah, the point about in our lives, it's like um, when you feel in severe mercy, people like that, he, he points out that the actual rejection in a lot of cases is the first step to conversion mm-hmm. because it's consenting to a fight. It's consenting to take the, the situation seriously enough to make a decision. Yeah. And once you get to that point, there's no going back to the sort of ignorance. It's you either leap towards him or leap away from him. Yeah. Um, and usually that leaping away from him is not actually the, the final kind of act of that, of yeah. that situation. Yeah, in Revelation, what is the most uh, preached against or destructive uh, disposition to have toward God? I'd, I would rather you be hot or cold, but if you are lukewarm, yeah. I will spit you out of my mouth. If you're comfortable, if you're in the middle, the seed's been planted, but you're like, oh, I'll water it later. You know, like, I've got Jesus in my life, but I've got all these other things I got going on. Like, that's the real danger for everyone waiting to respond. 
you know, just being that kind of fleeting, fickle, being choked up by the fears and anxieties of life, not taking Jesus seriously enough. Because when we do in either direction, God would rather us completely use our free will to reject him because at least there's motion in our life. At least we're making a decision, a convicted decision about him. And when there's momentum, just like if you're sailing in the wrong direction, all you have to do is just move the position of the sail and you can turn around. But if you're just dead in the water and you haven't even put the sail up, you're just floating until you're destroyed. You know, so sometimes we need to just put the sail up and be like, God, I have no idea where you're leading, but I'm just going to follow the wind. And when finally we get that sense of the Holy Spirit or that conviction in our own sin that like, oh man, this was not the right decision to make. All we got to do is just change the trajectory of that momentum and we can come right back to where we were and past it. The danger is those who are comfortable in their faith. Comfortable Christianity is not Christianity. Other questions, things that stood out to you. Marco. Just out of curiosity, so how would you place in order these four things, these four types of soil, from bad to worse? I mean, it's obviously like the first and fourth are, but how would you place them relative to their value or their quality? You know, just how would you rate them? Bad, 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 good. <laughs> <laughs> bad is all the same. Yeah. Okay. I mean, rejecting God, I mean, I'm, you know. I'm hesitant to give like a participation trophy to the one who's like really excited, but then like gets scorched. You know, it's like, yeah, I guess you had a little bit of effort, but it's really not a wholehearted response to God if it's that easy for it to be reversed, you know? So are there, you know, could there be degrees? Could we argue about that theologically or like kind of, you know, you know, maybe, but in my opinion, it's just like, you know, if you're not all in for the Lord, you're not in at all. You know, and that's kind of, you know, the nature of the gospel. It's the nature of the call of the disciples, like drop everything and follow me. But I have, I, have, I have this thing I have to go do tomorrow. Can I like do that? Can I go you know, do this? No, drop everything and follow me. doesn't mean that life is going to be boring and that you're going to have to reject your family and your whole old way of life. It just means that like I'm first. I'm first and then everything that you still desire that is good will be fulfilled and will be provided probably and then some in this journey. But are you willing to let go of it? Are you willing to say, like, all right, Lord, if you want to take everything away and give me something better, I trust that you will and that you already know how that's going to happen. But I know that it will be better. I know that it will be good. Because all things work for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That's what scripture tells us. All things. So no matter what, no matter what God takes away, he will give more. Always. Always. Greg? a little bit of a difference here where um, what we were talking about before for all, to all who have more will be given and, and they will have abundance but from all who have nothing even what they have will be taken away and then down below he says blessed are your eyes for they see your ears so they hear for I tell you that many prophets and good people have longed for the sight of the things which you are seeing yet never saw them to hear the things which you are hearing yet never heard them yeah. but if Prophets and the good people, if they were following along with the Old Testament, but it seems like they're still being left out of the picture here. Well, it's not that they're left out, it's that they understood the entire trajectory of human history was pointing toward a moment where God was promising a Redeemer, a Messiah. And so there were many prophets who lived six, seven, eight hundred, nine years, nine hundred years before Jesus who were making prophecies about the one who would come in the line of David 
the one who'd be born uh, in Bethlehem, the one who would redeem the entire world. And they had this excitement and this zeal and this fervor about finally this Messiah is going to come, but they still never saw it come to fruition. And so they are the ones that are, are being spoken about here. These prophets who, who knew it was coming, but didn't yet get to see it. And he's trying to get the disciples to understand, like, look, do you, do you not get what is happening right now? Because for hundreds, if not thousands of years, your entire people has been aching for this moment. And now it's here. Do you get the gravity of what is happening? You're walking in the footsteps of history, life-changing, world-altering, transformational history. You are walking step in step with it. And he's trying to paint that picture. This has been revealed to you, but not to them. They still have to make that decision. You've given up everything, so I'm telling you the truth, plainly, as it is. But I can't force them to come. And when they decide, then they'll be in the know. They'll recognize. They'll begin to see this is everything that you've been waiting for. Yeah? So they better not mess up. What's that? They better not mess up disciples. Well, they do. They all do. Except maybe John. I don't know. Well, no, that's not true. He wants to be at Jesus' right and left with his brother. So they all have these moments that you know they can't be proud of. They either abandon, betray, misunderstand what it means to be part of the posse of the Messiah. I think it's going to make them powerful and going to make them influential. They all don't get it. They all don't get it. But every single one of them, except for Judas, came back. They repented. They came back. They were faithful to that mission, even when it was difficult, even in the midst of persecution and fear. Every single one of them displayed moments of these other different responses to the seed, and they could have stayed there. Many of them were afraid. They were very zealous in the beginning, but then when it got hard and Jesus started saying, hey, by the way, I'm going to die. I'm like, what? What are you talking about? I thought this was like the glory days. Like, when are we going to go call down fire and brimstone? You know, they all had... had opportunities to fall into each one of these traps. I mean, the apostles are human, just like us. There's nothing inherently different about any of them. And in fact, you could argue that we actually have it better than they do. Because the apostles, when they initially responded to Jesus, did not yet have the Holy Spirit. You and I do. And we saw what the Holy Spirit was able to allow them to do once they had it after Pentecost. But we are more equipped, arguably, to respond to the grace that Jesus is offering us because of the Holy Spirit at work in us than the apostles were when he first called them. And so who are we to think like, oh, there are these great saints back in time and history. I can never amount to them. They're probably looking down at us in heaven like, oh, man, you got it so easy. Let me tell you. Let me tell you how it was before the Holy Spirit. You know, we're going to hear all those stories when we get to heaven. Back in my day when there was no Holy Spirit, we'd walk to Jerusalem barefoot, both ways, uphill. You know, they're gonna, it's going to be just like it is here, you know, but in a glorified way, obviously. But, you know, we don't recognize that gift that we have. You know, how easy we have it spiritually in terms of having the Holy Spirit and that truth that's been revealed to us. That we have this entire scriptures for us, readily available to read. When at their time, paper was so rare, it was lucky if their local synagogue had the complete Old Testament. They didn't have any of the New Testament yet. And then they had to rely on proper interpretation from their rabbi, depending on what school of education they were in. They heard different interpretations depending on the schools that their rabbis studied in. So imagine how lucky we are to have a centralized hierarchical church who tells us this is exactly... This is exactly what we believe. You can look it up. You can learn it for yourself. Everything's in here. The black and white teachings of the church. 
And even more than that, and the gray area stuff is out there and ready for you. And by the way, you have the Holy Spirit. I mean, how much easier do we have it? Not risking crucifixion for saying yes to Jesus. Not risking social upheaval, at least not in the same way. And yet, we are just as, if not more, reticent to respond. That's why I think there's going to be a reckoning at, at each one of our judgments. Maybe not you know, condemnation, obviously, but like a recognition of like, wow, like I could have done a whole lot more with what I was given. I barely made it in, like barely. <laughs> and praise God if we do. I hope we all do. But I think we need to recognize like we're pretty well off in terms of what we've been given and the ability we have to respond to this great gift of what God is trying to sow in each one of our lives. Any final thoughts, questions, reflections? Go for it. <laughs> you said something about, um, I mean, what you mentioned, Judas, something popped up in my head about verse 12, like, to anyone who has more will be given. Mm -hmm. He was one of the, you know, 12 apostles, and I was just wondering, like, how, how did he turn away if mm -hmm. he was given so much grace to be next to Jesus the whole entire time? Yeah. Well, it's part of the uh, Catholic theology of salvation that we've all been given this free gift of grace from God, that we need to repent of our sin, we need to respond in faith, we need to receive that gift of faith through baptism, and then we need to remain in a state of grace. And that's the key difference between us and other Christian denominations, remain in a state of grace. So in the beginning, did Judas have it? Yeah. Did he remain in a state where he was responding? No, because it can be lost. And then once it is lost, what do you have? And then even what you do have will be taken away. So as there's not this condition in Catholicism, this belief like there is in some other you know, Christian denominations that you just profess faith in Jesus Christ and you devote your life to him and you say, yes, Lord, I want you to be Lord over my life. And that's it. It's easy peasy from there on out. And you're saved. You got a one-way ticket to heaven and it's all great. You don't know. You know? And, and people in those denominations might argue like, oh, no, it's not that. But the theology says like that's all you need to do. And Scripture doesn't say that. Scripture says you're going to be judged based on how you responded to these least little ones of mine. Whether you fed your brothers and sisters who were hungry, you gave drink to the thirsty. In Matthew 25, the judgment of the nations. In James chapter 2, where it says, do you not know that faith without works is dead? That if you just believe in Jesus and think like, well, I'm a good person, that's not enough. It's not enough to wake up in the morning and be like, I'm a good Christian. I didn't murder anyone today. What did you do? <laughs> How did you respond? It's not just about being nice. It's about radically following the Lord. And that's hard. And that's why he has so much mercy on us. You know, I feel like sometimes when I, when I preach this or I share this, it can feel like this weight of like, oh man, like I'm not measuring up. I feel really bad about myself. Like, no, feel good about the cross. Feel good about everything that Jesus did for you because we're never going to meet that bar. We're never going to be able to do everything that we think we should be able to do because sin's a reality. Jesus is the only one who can get us to that bar. That reality of like, I can't save myself, Lord. I can't earn my way to heaven. Even if I respond in faith to you, it's because you're already at work in my life. You are literally doing everything and all I have to do is let you. 
The entire spiritual life is a toddler having a tantrum and their parents scooping them up and them, and them finally just giving up. That's our entire life. We're throwing this tantrum saying, I want this, I want that, I want to live my life the way that I want. And if we let God scoop us up and we finally just give up and say, all right, fine. That's the whole spiritual life of what it means to be a Christian. Giving up and letting God love us and direct us to where he knows he will be able to care for us the best. So when it comes to the seed being planted in your life or whatever's going on in your life, if you feel discouraged, if you feel like you're failing in that response, you're afraid, you're fickle, you're fleeting, you're forsaking God, or if you feel like you're fruitful, just give up this week. Just let God scoop you up. Let God do the growing. Let God do the planting. Let God cultivate that seed into something beautiful in your life. And before you know it, more seeds will come and you'll be spreading that message of the good news of Jesus Christ to all those around you. And you won't be able to help but do it. It'll overflow from you. But we can't do it without him. We can't do it of our own accord. It's only his grace at work in us. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Jesus, for the gift of this study, the gift of your word. And thank you for all of the ways that you led us here tonight. All of the people in years past who had conversations with us, who walked with us, who inspired us to deeper faith, who caused us to think about the fact that maybe there's more to life than the life that we were living. I thank you, Lord, for all those people who've had an impact in our own faith lives, who've led us to this moment in our relationship with you today. Help us to recognize that even the smallest gesture of faith, the smallest invitation, the smallest amount of support, love, or encouragement to another person can be a game changer in their life. So help us to hold on to that and look for those opportunities to share your word with others this week and also to respond to it in deeper faith every single day, to not be comfortable in our faith, but to strive for excellence in all that we do, in all the ways that we pursue you, but at the same time completely give ourselves up to your divine providence and to your grace, to let you scoop us up as your children because you are a loving father who knows how to care for his children. So help us to let you care for us this week, Lord, to let go of the things that we think will make us happy and turn our attention, our hearts, our ears, our time to you. Thank you, Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit. We pray all these things through the intercession of our Blessed Mother as we pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We will...